Well, thanks for tuning in to A Podcast with Allison Morrow, the podcast that focuses on the southern resident killer whales, J-Pod, K-Pod, and L-Pod. Again, I'm Allison Morrow, and today we have uh, Joe Gatos, the veterinarian and scientist with Sea Doc Society. Uh, Joe, you've been a participant in all kinds of different avenues related to recovery with the southern resident killer whales. Uh, recently, of course, very intimately acquainted with what uh, everyone was focused on trying to do to save uh, J-50. There's just been so much you've been a part of. So maybe before we talk about this health database that you're uh, working on, let's just talk about what the last few weeks have been like for you. Yeah, sure, Allison. Thanks for having me on the podcast uh, or on a podcast. Yeah, exactly. Um, the last the last few weeks, I would say even the last two months have been really busy. I think anybody that has ever been on call knows how that permeates every aspect of your life. And so for myself and for a lot of the other veterinarians and biologists that have been working on the J50 case, you know, basically we wake up every morning, check your phone and try and figure out if if, um, if you have to go out into the field, if you have to work today, if you have to get supplies together. And there's been a, just a ton of people from, you know, UC Davis, the Vancouver Aquarium, NOAA, a bunch of different nonprofit groups um, and that have been talking about saying, you know, what kind of drugs are there, how's the animal, what kind of condition it is, so we collect some feces, uh, what's the analysis on that, what's the next steps, and, and then nightly phone calls every night, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, that sort of a thing. So it's, it's, it's definitely uh, permeated everything that, that we've been doing, and unfortunately sometimes these intensive efforts, especially the first time you do it, um, they're not well thought out ahead of time. You have some baseline, but it just takes a lot of coordination. So been a big time consuming thing but it's always exciting to be working on something that's new and then hopefully can be helpful. So I guess I should back up a quick second in case people are just tuning into this and don't know who J50 is or even J35 who preceded her with the her dead calf. So J35 is this uh, uh, mother orca who caught the world's attention by pushing her dead calf for a record number of like over two weeks and then while everyone's paying attention to that, we notice there's this other sick orca calf that's J50, otherwise known as Scarlet, and she's very skinny and sickly looking. We're not exactly sure what's wrong with her, but obviously she's not really eating. So then you guys stage this historic intervention where you try to administer uh, antibiotics, which you were able to do a couple times successfully, um, even try to feeding, which we're not still sure, I'm, I don't think yet, if she ever ate anything. But now J50's disappeared, so we do believe, right, that she's dead. Some folks who were resistant to the work that you guys were doing saying you know let nature take its course let's leave the whales alone why did you feel like it was the best course of action to say darter and do all that stuff is over the num a number of years myself and a lot of other people have watched these young southern residents be born and celebrate only to watch them get thin and then die and we've been asking ourselves gosh <laughs> isn't there something we can do to help uh, you know, we're, we're veterinarians, and veterinarians, you know, we're interested in the population, but sometimes when you have a very small number of animals, actually some veterinary intervention can, can really help. And uh, another one of the programs uh, out of the Wildlife Health Center at UC Davis, uh, sister program to the Sea Doc Society, which is like Sea Doctors, is this Gorilla Doctors program, and they've been providing free-ranging veterinary, uh, not free-ranging, but veterinary care to free-ranging mountain gorillas for decades now. And they first started off just by taking off snares, immobilizing animals. And then they started discovering, oh, people are giving diseases 
respiratory diseases, so they're treating animals. And, they, and it's evolved into individual animal health, but also ecosystem health, and then even human health. They're trying to improve the health care for the workers that are working in the field with the mountain gorillas. And so it's been a really successful program. They had a paper a few years ago that showed that this population of these animals, they're growing by 4%. They were, they were able to quantify that half of that growth rate, 2% of the population's growth, which is big population growth for an endangered population, um, was attributable to this veterinary care. So we, several years ago, started talking with NOAA and other collaborators to say, you know, what can we do? Um, and let's, you know, let's start talking about that, because if we don't talk about it, we're never going to do anything. So this was the first time that we actually um, were out in the field trying some, some efforts. So it's new for killer whales, but what you're saying is there is a precedent for intervening with wildlife in other ways. Right, and these, this is, the, I think, the important thing for people to remember is that our goal is to have a free-ranging, healthy population. But when populations get very small, even the health of one or two or three animals, um, especially young females that will go on to, to you know, have kids themselves, can be really important and really valuable to growing that population. How do you feel at after all of that work now, knowing that it, you know, we still lost J fifty, and then how does that change things for the future? In your opinion, does it come faster? Do you act earlier? I mean, this sort of seems like it may have opened the door for this kind of work in a way that it had never really been discussed before. Yeah, that's, it's a good question, Allison. And I think as a veterinarian, you always feel bad when you lose a patient, um, and you always ask yourself, gosh, should I have done more? Could we have started earlier? You know, what else could we have done differently? And that's, that's important stuff to ask because it makes you do better the next time, but you also can't beat yourself up. You, you have to realize that, hey, under the circumstances, we did the best that we could. And so I think right now we all feel bad that we couldn't help her. Um, and we entertained everything. We entertained, you know, what if we went right away, first when we saw her thin and captured her, and, and treated her and then released her, and then we could all be so proud of that. But, you know, you just don't capture a 600-kilogram wild whale when it's swimming next to its mom. Um, you know, that it, there's just a whole bunch of issues and problems with that. And so we had to, you know, when you're doing something in the moment, you have to consider all of these things, and then we obviously, the last thing we want to do is create a problem when we're trying to help. So I think that we did the best that we could under the circumstances I was super proud that everybody, uh, all these people came together. There were people who were very anti-captivity sitting at the table right next to SeaWorld. SeaWorld came out shining. They said, you know, we've been caring for, for, for killer whales in captivity for, for decades. They were the ones in the Vancouver Aquarium. They were the ones that said, hey, this is a safe antibiotic. This is not a safe antibiotic. This is, you know, we can expect that we can get levels at this you know, high enough that they're therapeutic for 14 to 21 days. You know, people really came together and said, let's, let's try and help this whale. And then all of us really understood that the ultimate goal was to help the population. So none of us lost sight of the fact that we still need to increase some salmon for these whales. We still need to decrease noise, get rid of toxins, things like that. So I think, you know, looking back, you beat yourself up a little bit, but I think you also have to say, look, we did the best that we could, and it's the first time we have did anything, so we have to be happy about that. I'm glad you brought up SeaWorld because there are a lot of people, I've even done stories where I've gone to SeaWorld to ask for their expertise on this, and I get a lot of uh, pushback when I talk to SeaWorld. Um, 
what do you think about that? People saying, you know, I can't believe after the history that we've had with theme parks and roundups of orcas that we would even come to the table with SeaWorld. I, I think that, um, I mean, I could see where people have trepidation about that and people feel super strongly about that. But honestly, what, as a veterinarian, why would we try any medication without knowing what's been tried and what's worked before? And, and they've, you know, they've shown, I mean, I think in the early years they didn't, their veterinary care, they had a paper come out a few years ago and showed that you know, the first decade or 15 years, it was kind of hard for them to, to provide medical care. And then the, over the last decade or so, their medical care has been pretty outstanding. And, um, and they've learned a lot from those animals and they're taking, you know, those animals are in, in good health. They're, they're, they're getting, you know, very high, highest quality veterinary care that they can get. You know, we'd be we'd be crazy not to go to them and say, "Hey, give us some advice on all this. What's working for you? What's not?" And then, honestly, those people that are they're caring for those captive whales. I mean, even if you're anti-captivity, they're they're going to that job every day because they love those animals, and so they want to help other animals and the animals in the wild as well. Um, so I think that they were they were happy to be part of it, and then they provide a lot of really important information. So is this now the new normal moving forward? What do you think happens the next time we see that there's a whale that's not <laughs> looking we're good? We're going to wait and see on that, but I think that at least now we're in a position to, to know how to get in contact with everybody, maybe make some assessments earlier on. I think what we realized, uh, the biggest take-home for me is we need some better diagnostics. You know, we were trying some treatments without really having an understanding of what was going on. I think that in you know in a couple of years we we might be able to collect a breath sample and get everything, all the metabolites and all the information we can now get from a blood sample. You know, we can't get a blood sample from a free ranging killer whale unless it's super sick and on the beach, but we can get a breath sample. Wouldn't it be great if we could actually go? Oh my gosh, this animal is suffering from kidney disease. Something must be going on, or this animal has huge white cell count or inflammation. Um, you know, it looks like it has a, a bacterial or a fungal infection. And I think if we can do stuff like that, then I think that we can have a better chance of doing successful treatment. Um, right now, what we have is, hey, we've got a couple tools. We think the tools are, you know, there's a good chance they could help. There's a really good chance they're not going to hurt. Let's try that. That's not the best veterinary medicine in the world. So you think it's just a matter of getting the technology up to speed? I think so. And I think that this is really going to push the envelope on you know, why we want to get the technology up to speed. And there's a lot of really smart people out there that could that can help us do that. So let's get into that part of it with this health database that you're putting together. And um, essentially what you were telling me earlier before we started the podcast is that you have a lot of information from all kinds of different sources about these whales, but there isn't necessarily or there hasn't been one place to go to it to just get the whole background as fast as possible. Right. These are one of the best studied population of, of you know, killer whales or even toothed whale cetaceans in the whole world. Um, but right now, if you want to get hormone data, you talk to Dr. Sam Wasser. If you want to get some biopsy data, you maybe talk to Peter Ross or to Brad Hansen. If you want to get sighting data, you talk to Ken Balcom or Dave Elifrit. Um, it's kind of like, but you don't do that when you go to the doctor. You don't say, well, you know, you have one record. And uh, the person that's maybe your oncologist can look at your x-rays. They can look at your blood work. They, 
you know, can look at your weight gain or loss or that sort of thing. I mean, can you imagine if you're talking to your oncologist and they're like, well, I don't really know because i I, I got to call the radiologist or i got to call this person and we're going to have a phone consultation on Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Or, you know, it just doesn't work like that well, now. Having electronic medical records has just opened up the door for improving treatment, and it's also opened up the door for us to be able to understand patterns. Um, you know, you could look at, say, if in a human case, you could look at human electronic medical, medical records. You could look at 10,000 of them and say, wow, people that are exposed to fracking are, have a higher likelihood of having kids with birth defects or, or premature births. You know, that's the sort of thing you can get, but you can only get it if you have those electronic records. And so if you have those records together, what do you use them mostly for? For treating or for policy or what? I like to think that we'll be able to use them for both. I think that it will help for individual animals to look and say, oh, you know what, when we go back and look at the record, it looks like this animal is starting to show signs of being skinny a couple of years ago, and we didn't really pick that up because it was so subtle. But now that we've got this, we can see it's a chronic problem. It's not an acute problem. That gives us some ideas, different ideas about diagnosis. Um, you know, maybe it's a congenital problem. Maybe it's not uh, that this animal swallowed a plastic bag or something like that. Um, and so I think we could use them for individual, but I think that we could also use them for the health of the whole population to, to say, you know, we could take somebody's data on contaminants, say Noah's data. We could take somebody else's data on pregnancy rates, say Sam Wasser's data, and then we could look at those two combined and say, oh, my gosh, look, it's so clear right now. But when those databases live on different computers and different people's offices, it's really hard to pull that stuff together. Using G50 as an example, can you tell me, like, what the challenges were with that effort because you didn't necessarily have all this together versus what it may have looked like if you did? Yeah, I think for her case, um, there were only there were some subtle things that that were different. I mean, we were able to get on the phone pretty quickly, and and find out about you know that she was thin, um, but that really just came from anecdotal. Oh my gosh, she looks thin, and then we had to call some other people and say, yes, yeah, looks thin. Oh, you know what? We looked at our data, say John Durbin and and Holly Fernbach's data on uh, photogrammetry where they're flying over top and taking pictures, they were saying, you know what, she actually looked thin last year, and she's always been sort of small when we measure her length compared to other animals. Um, And then, you know, Ken says, yeah, and remember when she was born, um, she actually had all these rake marks all over her, like maybe she had trouble being birthed and another whale had to pull her out or something like that. You know, all of these, we got that information, but it was, a lot of it was anecdotal and just because we were having phone conversations with each other and, and, and conference calls, um, it's not the most efficient way to do it. If you have all of that stuff reported, pull up a record on an animal. You can read through that in a few minutes without trying to get 15 or 20 people on a conference call when they're all pretty darn busy out there doing their own research. Do we have hope? Are we? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you wouldn't be out there if you didn't think that it was yeah, making a difference. Yeah, that's exactly but right. I mean, where are we we're at? all doing this because we love these animals, and we want we want these populations to be around for our kids and our kids' kids and everybody else's kids' kids. Um, and so I think we wouldn't we, we wouldn't be here if we didn't have hope. Um, we don't want to be hopeless, and um, and it's nice to you know when you think about okay. It was only 30 or 40 years ago when they were being captured, but it was only maybe 50 years ago when people were shooting them. <laughs> and and so we have come a long way from, you know, the societal perspective. 
of that, and we do value them. And I think when you can have a healthy top, you know, predator like like killer whales, you get you you can have a healthy ecosystem, and that's really what we all want too. We're going to benefit from that uh, economically. We're going to benefit from that from a health perspective, um, and so you know, it's just and it's just going to be better for everybody. There, there's a great quote in this book by Nick Hanauer and Eric Liu where they said, when when everyone's better off, we're all better off. And I, I first thought, that's, that's a dumb quote. And then I thought about it, and I thought, that's so true, though, right? They were talking about the economic situation of people, but it's when the ecosystem is doing well and the animals are doing well, we're also going to be doing well. Y- yeah, um, so we, we have hope. Um, and I think things are moving faster. We're learning more. Uh, I just hope that we're staying ahead of the curve. So one issue I would love to get your thoughts on, because I sort of know where you stand on it, and it's been an interesting topic of debate over the last, I don't know, say a couple of months, it's really kind of come into the public arena, is the pinniped issue, the predator issue. There was a paper, obviously, that came out um, by NOAA, right, that was saying that uh, these marine mammals are eating more salmon than fishermen were catching, right? It came out, I think, uh, was it last year? Yeah, 2017. Okay. That was the, the Brandon Chasco uh paper that came out and so then all right the conversation says well it starts around should we be killing these uh predators even you know people who love the whales or love animals are not necessarily veering away from that idea saying all right well i guess if we have a an overpopulation and that's what they're calling it of of marine mammals um that are preying on salmon and taking them away from the orcas then maybe we should consider something like that so my first question is like is it true i guess in your opinion that we have a quote overpopulation or do we have just a healthy population and we just don't have enough fish and secondly what do you think about the call the idea of taking out these animals i I mean i think the the harbor seal which is in in the inland waters in the Salish Sea, that's a conservation success story. If you look at the graph of that population since 1972, it just came up, and then right around 2000 and 2001, it leveled out. And, and science, scientists have done the math on that, and they said that's what we call carrying capacity. That, not those, that number of seals is what the ecosystem can carry. So that's a huge success. We, we have as many seals as we can have right now. Um, and then, but when you bring predators back and people aren't used to having predators around, well, you know, predators do eat other things. That's the definition of a predator, right? And so they're not eating, they're not only eating salmon off of people's fishing lines or whatever, um, but, you know, the concern is, oh, they're actually eating a lot of very small uh, out-migrating Chinook as well. But look what, look at what we've done to the system. You know, maybe they were, those Chinook were once out-migrating with, with lamprey, and with Yulikon, and with all kinds of different fatty forage fish. But now when you only have one, what are they going to eat? Well, they're going to eat what's there, right? Nobody's talking about calling harbor seals in Alaska. They have a lot of harbor seals, right? But they have a healthier, more robust ecosystem, and so the effect of those animals on a single prey species is different. I, I, I challenge people to say, show me a time in the past where we've killed predators and it's had the intended effect, especially generalists. Harbor seals are generalists. They eat over 60 species of fish and invertebrates like squid. And so some of the things they eat, like hake, hake are, are predators of salmon, <laughs> right? And so maybe you knock them back and then the hake population increases. Well, you've accomplished nothing then, right? Because you just have traded off one predator for the other one and then you have... Um, 
an animal welfare issue. You know, how do we feel about going in and shooting a, a pretty darn smart animal that, you know, I think is probably as smart, if not smarter, than our pet dogs. They can live to be 26, 28 years old. Um, I just don't think that's where we want to go. That's kind of what we were thinking about in the 1940s, not, not, not 2018. So where do you think we should go? I think what we need to do are the really hard things to do, and that's changing our paradigm on what's a healthy ecosystem. You know, we need to be restoring some really important uh, property, some, you know, estuaries and things like that, eelgrass. We need to be taking better care of our shorelines. We need to, you know, maybe not be harvesting herring just for the row fishery like they're doing in British Columbia right now. This is a small number of people making a lot of money on that, and, and that's, a, that's a prey fish, herring, right? We want to have as many herring as we can, so why are we allowing somebody, a couple people, to make a lot of money off of that when there are a lot of people who benefit from having healthy populations? You know, watchable wildlife, that's a $2 billion a year industry in Washington State. And so I think we need to start saying, let's make some long-term investments in, in bringing this place back and you know, that means cleaning up toxins, restoring areas, setting aside some habitat for protection. The, we don't like that as, as Americans. We like quick fixes, and I think that's a, hard, so that's a hard thing to do. You know, if you go to the doctor and you're getting ready to have a heart attack, people say, well, is there, is there a medication I can take? And no, you've got to do the hard things. You've got to start exercising. You've got to start eating better. You, you know, you have to stop drinking so much alcohol. You know, those are hard things to do, and it, you don't just do one of them. You have to do all of them, and that's kind of where we are with the ecosystem. Say you do the hard things, and those take 10 years. Do the whales have that kind of time? No, they really don't, Allison, and that's, we're between a rock and a hard place for the southern residents. But, it, interestingly, there was a paper that came out, it was a population viability analysis that came out um, by Lacey and others uh, a year or two ago, and what they showed is that if we, we, we probably can't bring back Chinook fast enough, but if we can bring back that Chinook by 15% and we can reduce noise by 50%, then we actually can see some good growth in that southern resident population. And the reason is the relationship is noisy waters make it harder for the southern residents to find fish. So we can do some temporary things like increasing uh, hatchery production and things like that, but we don't want to do that every year. You know, why don't we do that? And why at the same time we start restoring some more natural runs, spending money on, you know, protecting some habitat, restoring some areas for, for naturally spawning Chinook so we can have wild Chinook that are doing that job. And then maybe eventually we don't need hatcheries. Joe, is there anything else you'd like to add that I did not ask you about that you want people to hear? Allison, I, I really appreciate you talking about this topic because it is difficult and it's, and, and it's complex. Um, but people are smart, and I think when you give, when you kind of paint that big picture like you're able to do, um, you know, people realize that, hey, you know, it takes a, we have to do a lot of things at the same time to make things better. And I think once it's about expectation management. Once people realize that, they say, okay, I'm in for that. Let's do it. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I've been trying to do with this podcast is just let folks who are insiders and have a lot of information to share that don't really get out to the public because of just how fast the news cycle works to give you a chance to kind of breathe and really flush out some of these issues. So I'm happy to do it, and I'm really thankful that you're willing to take the time. Oh, I'm excited about your a podcast. <laughs> it's a, the best and a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, Joe Gatos, uh, Doc Society, thank you so much. Thank you, Allison.